Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Done deal. The U.S. Senate agrees more cash for businesses and COVID-19 testing. Second wave warning. A top U.S. official says there could be worse to come. And the aftermath. We're back in the virus epicenter of Wuhan. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. I hope you are all staying safe and healthy wherever you are watching us from. Now, while coronavirus cases around the world do continue to rise, I also want to remind us that the recoveries are rising too. We've seen almost 700,000 people globally recover, and that's important and good news. Meanwhile, here in the United States, more than 45,000 people have died. What remains very clear is that more testing is required all over the world to help save lives. At least here in the United States, the Senate started to recognize that yesterday, allocating $25 billion for increased testing efforts. That, in the latest emergency aid bill, we'll call that a start. I think more will be required. They also added $310 billion to the Paycheck Protection Scheme. That's for small businesses. The Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin says the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Scheme, has already saved 30 million jobs. But the new money is not expected to last long. The Consumer Bankers Association warned yesterday it could be gone in as little as 48 hours. That gives you a sense of the pent-up demand. Now, as we heard yesterday on the show, first in line for the money may in fact be some of the smaller oil firms. A new study says more than 500 U.S. oil exploration and production companies could file for bankruptcy by the end of next year. This, of course, comes as crude prices fell 43 percent yesterday. We'll be discussing all the details on this, but the oil markets certainly are sending a message, I think, about the outlook for global growth and its weak stock futures. As you can see, moving higher here following a sharp sell-off yesterday. But the Dow has fallen some 5% over the last two days. So volatility, we're still seeing that for these markets. To Asia now, where Fitch, the rating agency, once again lowered its sovereign rating on Hong Kong, this time citing the coronavirus crisis. Hong Kong closed the session flat. All right, let's get to the drivers, because as you can see, we have plenty to get to. Following Senate approval, the House is now expected to pass the $485 billion aid package tomorrow to help small businesses, among others. Christine Romans joins us now on this. Christine, you and I have been saying on a daily basis, more money desperately required for what is the backbone of the U.S. economy. Now they get it. The question is, does it go where it's supposed to? 
And this is the cornerstone, really, mm-hmm. of what is emergency relief right now. Before we can talk about opening and rebuilding the economy, we have to just make these Main Street firms be able to survive here in the very near term. So what's in it? There's more money for that PPP program, that payroll protection program, $310 billion there, and $60 billion set aside to go to uh, small, really small lenders. Uh, and I think the idea here is that these small lenders already have uh, associations, business lines with very small Main Street uh, businesses, and they might be able to get that money to them quickly. But getting it to them quickly is so important here. Um, you know, that 48 hours statistic that you just gave us, wow, that is really stunning. I've been hearing that this money is going to run out in a matter of days, no question. Can they get to everyone and can they get to everyone fairly? That is going to be the real test here. Yeah, and that's going to be the challenge. And as you and I have been discussing, we're not even still sure that they have the mechanism right yet to be able to get to the banks that they've promised will get money, the smaller banks here. But Christine, I also want to talk about the money for testing. It's astonishing to me that that's seen as some kind of trade-off politically right. in order to get money for small businesses, get more money for testing, because I've lost count of the number of businesses that say, particularly the biggest ones, we're not going to be secure opening yeah. up without it. Yeah. I mean, this whole idea that there's a light switch that the president can turn on and off for the economy or that the governors have a dial that they can slowly uh, turn up. It is the American worker and the American consumer who's going to decide when this economy opens up. And that will be after they feel safe, after they know how widespread the illness is and whether there are antibodies. All kinds of different things are going to go into that uh, calculation. And you hear again and again from economists that they need to have more testing, a widespread national strategy. And that is the very first step before you start talking about reopening. So a $25 billion down payment on a national testing strategy is in this money here. Um, you know, it's almost amazing how much money has been spent in just the past few weeks. And there really is still a lot of work to be done uh, to get this pandemic under control. Down payment. Mm-hmm. Agree. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Now to the oil market where prices are a touch higher today after a historic drop, of course, over the last two sessions. President Trump promising to rescue the industry from a looming wave of bankruptcies and mass layoffs. John Defteris joins us now to discuss. I mean, we can talk about the individual pressures on the oil market and what we're seeing here. But I, I do think what President Trump said there was interesting. We spoke to the CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce yesterday, and he said it's not the big guys we have to worry about. It's the shale players and the smaller businesses that are going to need loans and support here. Yeah, I think that is absolutely correct, Julia. And I think the tweet by the president after we had that conversation yesterday that they will never let the U.S. oil and gas companies down, the great ones, he even said. But how deep is the well of support here? Right now, the mandate seems to be the small and mid-sized producers. The U.S. Energy Secretary, Dan Bruyette, is having conversations with Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. Loans between 200 to $250 million. You talked about it at the top of your program here to stave off the bankruptcies. Uh, 500, perhaps, over the next uh, 18 months. That was based on 20 to $25 oil. We're a whole new territory here, uh, around $11, $12 for WTI. And there's a real clear problem because the $200 billion that these companies are holding as debt, they took it on collateral from their uh, oil and gas reserves. Uh, price at the start of the year, $60 a barrel. Break even in the shale basins. When I visited last year, they talked about 30 35 40 
again, this just doesn't work at 11 to $15 a barrel. That's a huge challenge. So you ask, when are we going to have this recovery uh, take place? I talked about deeper for longer, uh, a deeper demand fall for a longer period of time yesterday. Fax Global Energy, one of the better consultants out there, was suggesting you could start to see the rebalancing, Julia, July, August. The word was careful. Uh, early stages of recovery was the phrase, and as a matter of fact. And in that experience we had, 2016 and 17, that was a six to nine month process to eat up the surplus uh, oil that's out there. And if you have complete compliance by the OPEC plus producers, a lot of big ifs here, right, Julia? So mm -hmm. you could see a fourth quarter recovery in prices get us back up to $35, $40 a barrel. But right now, nobody's talking about that. Yeah, there's so many ifs there, John, and it just underscores the point that these businesses are going to need some support in the interim because I'm still digesting what you said about the fact that those predictions about bankruptcies was oil double where it lies today. And that's the critical point here as well. Yes. Everybody hurts at these oil levels. I mean, we're talking about the United States, but what about Nigeria? What about the Iraqis? What about even Saudi Arabia when it's got and made budget commitments that it has to keep to its, its people? How do these countries cope with this? Well, it's a good time for us to talk about it because this is mm. a global contagion that has spread to uh, North Sea Brent, as you suggested here. They're struggling to hold on to $20 a barrel. So if you look at the year to date, uh, everybody forgets $68 a barrel in January on the tensions with Iran, which are resurfacing again with Donald Trump. And we could talk about that at another time. Uh, but this is the challenge now because we're in this $20 range. The most extreme example is a country that had a lot of protests in 2019, Algeria. They need to balance their budget at $157 a barrel. You talked about Nigeria. We've had some protests here with people kind of hungry for food because of the lockdown that's taking place. They've already taken $7 billion from multilateral lenders. They're looking at a recession of 4% this year. Could be much worse. Iraq had intense protests last year because of the oil corruption in the country the second largest producer in OPEC, and they're doing salary cuts of 50% already. And then I say the big four quickly, Julia, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, Qatar. They have sovereign wealth of $500 billion to $1.000 trillion, for example, here in the UAE. But again, their budgets, most of them, 60 to $75 a barrel. So for the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, and the major projects, they're looking at uh, budget cuts of 20%, sources tell me right now. So can you proceed with the 2030 plan at the pace that you were planning for when you have this crisis on your hands? And that's what's with us right now. And people are saying, John, 2021, still difficult in budget planning. We're in the range of 20 $25 a barrel. The math just doesn't work in this region as well. No, it doesn't. And this is years the legacy of this is years, isn't it? Even if we see some kind of recovery in terms of spending capabilities, and that's aside from the health crisis. Thank mm. you, John. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. Now, a warning from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. It says a second wave of the coronavirus is coming, and it could be worse than the current outbreak. However, not all experts agree, as White House Task Force coordinator Dr. Elizabeth Burke suggests. I don't know if it will be worse. I think this has been pretty bad. Um, when you see what has happened in New York, um, that was very bad. I believe that we'll have early warning signals, both from our surveillance that we've been talking on, about in these, on the vulnerable populations. We're going to continue that surveillance from now all the way through the fall to be able to give us that early warning signal. 
CNN's senior medical correspondent, uh, Elizabeth Cohen, joins us now. Elizabeth, always fantastic to have you on the show. A bit of disagreement there about how bad a second wave what might be. I know the CDC was saying if you combine it with flu season, um, it could be very bad and pretty overwhelming for our, our medical systems here. Is it just ultimately an argument to say we need to track and we need to spend more money on testing and tracing just so that we are on top of this if it comes back? Julia, I think you've hit the two bottom lines here. One, we need to keep testing. We need to keep being vigilant. And secondly, Dr. Redfield at the CDC, I think, has been misunderstood. The headline on the Washington Post story says second wave. He never said that. In the Washington Post story, not once did he use the term second wave. Let's take a look at what Dr. Redfield actually said, because he's actually, I think, pretty much in agreement with Dr. Burks. So let's take a look at that. What he said was there's a possibility that the assault of the virus on our nation next winter will actually be even more difficult than the one we just went through. We're going to have the flu epidemic and the coronavirus epidemic at the same time. All he was saying was, you think this is bad? Wait until we have flu on top of it. We're out of flu season right now. But he doesn't think there's going to be a second wave. A wave makes it sound like things will get better and then worse. I talked to someone in Dr. Redfield's office and they said, no, what he meant was that coronavirus is going to continue ebbing and flowing, but will continue until the fall and then we'll have flu on top of it. And that's why it's going to be worse. It's not because there's going to be a new wave of coronavirus. It's because coronavirus will be on top of the flu. Yeah, it's the double whammy effect here. Although admittedly, there's right. a lot of ifs in right. there, depending on what opening up looks like and, and whether or not we see a rise in cases as well, so that there are lots of questions still. Talk to me about the University of Virginia sponsored study into the anti-malarial drug. You and I were talking about this in the past. You said just because I give you a cookie while you're ill doesn't mean your cold gets better. And that sticks in my mind, quite frankly. 368 people in this study, so it's still a small one. But there's evidence to suggest, again, we need to be very cautious about this drug. Right. And I want to talk about the size of studies since you brought it up, Julia, because mm. I think this is important. Stephen Hahn, the head of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, called this a small study. Frankly, it's one of the larger, if not the largest, hydroxychloroquine study. So is, is 368 small by sort of normal standards? Yes. But by coronavirus standards, this is not small. In fact, it's large. The study that the president keeps touting, President Trump keeps touting, saying, see, hydroxychloroquine works, essentially, was 20 people. So this one is actually relatively large. So let's take a look at what that study found. It was done by the Veterans Administration, veterans who've served in wars. And so this is a, a good a study done by a good group of people who are considered to be reliable. And what they found was that when people took hydroxychloroquine, 27.8 percent of them died. When they did not, 11.4% of them died. Now, to be clear, this is a study where, you know, all sorts of things were going on. And so there were other factors as well. But even so, the authors say this is statistically significant. I will note that this was published on a preprint server, meaning that it has not been reviewed by the medical community and that or by peers and that it has not been published. So that's important to point out. But still, this study says it really says a lot. Yeah, it does. And to your point, when you don't have uh, many studies done, this one, given it is, and I've read too, that it's the largest actually that we've got so far, we have to listen to it. Elizabeth Cohen, Senior right. Medical Correspondent, thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Great to have you with us.
All right, to Wuhan, China now, and a return to the original epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic as the city of 11 million people finds some kind of new normal. David Culver joins us now. David, great to have you with us and great to have you there. You know, one of the standout moments for me three months ago was talking to you when you were given hours to leave as the lockdown happened and you said you felt bad for leaving. What does it feel like now being back? In the few hours that we had to sleep uh, after we arrived, Julia, I woke up around 3 a.m. local time, realizing that was the same time three months prior I got that call to say, you need to get out. Wuhan is going on lockdown. And hundreds of others of folks were at the train station doing exactly what we were doing, trying to find a train out. Now, here we are after what was a 76-day halting of life. Things came to a stop. People were really sealed inside their homes. Everything was so still here as the the hardest part of this outbreak uh, was trying to be brought under control. And, and here we are now, post the reopening of Wuhan, which happened on April 8th. And you can hear behind me the traffic. You can see things are starting to reopen, starting to come back online. But it's with a cautious optimism and a lot of hesitation for the folks that we talk to. I think people, for the most part, want to believe that they're past this, but they don't fully believe it. And even the government here says, don't get complacent. Don't think that you've got this beat because they too fear that there could be a second wave. You heard Elizabeth talking about that. It's something that even at the epicenter where they talk about the harshest and sometimes brutal lockdown conditions, they feel like they could still be susceptible to something coming back. But let me show you what they're doing in some places, including our hotel. I think this is kind of telling and, and interesting and, and uh, kind of anecdotal experience that we are going through. Going into the hotel, for example, an elevator, you start to see uh, a, a setting for each person to stand in. Only four people allowed in those places in the elevator at all four corners. You go in, you stand in your place. You can use a tissue to touch the buttons. That's how uh, really mindful they are of, of any sort of contamination and exposure to this virus. Going into the hotel, they even spray us up and down with this pesticide-like bottle full of what you assume to be some sanitizer just to make sure we're not carrying with us anything that's unwanted. That's every time we go in. So it's not just when we go in to check in with our luggage. It's each and every time, head to toe, and then your feet as well. Getting here was interesting in of itself, Julia, because we took the train, and it's not just something you can book a trip and think that you can get there. Getting around China is tricky because you also, also don't want to fall into quarantine, so you've got to be really aware of what the local jurisdictions are doing. And so we had weeks in planning this and kind of being uh, very watchful as to how they might be implementing some of these quarantine laws. We were able to get here just about 24 hours ago, and uh, coming on the train, there were a good number of other locals doing the same. But what you realize is they're looking at foreigners in particular. And they came up to myself and my photojournalist, and they asked us where we were coming from, how long we'd been in the country. They wanted to see passports to verify that we had been in here beyond two weeks. Shows you the real concern is now imported cases. So foreigners are deemed to be the external threat. And, and so that is carried through. Even as we arrive, they wanted to check and make sure our temperatures were, were in check uh, and, and that we were not going to be bringing along with us anything that would potentially cause more exposure and problems here, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. And I think every country in the world is going to act the same, to be, to be fair to, to China here. It's, you know, you deal with your own people and you, you hope that no one else is coming in and bringing it in. Um, David, thank you so much for being there and safe journey, please, back to, uh, back to Beijing. Great to have sure. you with Thanks, us. Thanks, Julia. David Culver in Wuhan there.
All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, as small businesses prepare to jump on more stimulus here in the United States, more cash made available, one fintech lender, one online lender is taking a different tack. And later, our obsession with Carol Baskin is helping Netflix drive up those subscriber numbers. We'll show you how big of a leap the company saw. That's later in the show. back to First Move, where we're seeing green arrows for U.S. futures for the first time this week. Stocks are coming off two days of losses as we learn more about the economic implications of the coronavirus outbreak. But you can see nice rises at this moment, new. And we are sure to get fresh evidence of the damage tomorrow when the U.S. releases new jobless claims numbers. Remember, some 22 million people have already filed for help since mid-March and the turmoil, of course, in the oil and gas markets since that then could trigger fresh job losses in the weeks ahead. Meanwhile, major airlines are beginning to report first quarter results today to Delta posting its first loss in five years. United CEO says ticket demand is essentially zero right now. And United is set to sell more than a billion dollars in stock to raise more cash. Meanwhile, the new aid package is expected to give the Paycheck Protection Program a further $310 billion. But for many small business owners who don't have prior relationships, particularly with some of the larger banks, the problem could still be accessibility if they don't have access to the Small Business Administration. One of the online lenders that was given access, though, and can help is Lendio. And joining us now, Lendio founder and CEO Brock Blake. Brock, great to have you with us on the show. Thank you uh, so much for being here. I know one of your key concerns was just how many banks are going to be able again to use this facility because small businesses do have relationships with banks. But if the bank can't get access to the program, they've got to go somewhere else. Yeah, no question. Julia, thanks for having me this morning. Um, I I am excited that uh, Congress has earmarked $60 billion towards community banks. But my biggest question from round one, my biggest concern were that a lot of banks were sitting on the sideline and not participating in these loans, either because they chose not to participate or they weren't approved by the SBA. That meant millions of small business owners were going to their own bank, applying for a loan and being rejected and pushed to a different bank. When they went to another financial institution, they were at the back of the line. Uh, That puts a lot of business owners at a disadvantage. So we're encouraging every community bank in the country to hopefully jump in the game and start participating in this program. And hopefully the SBA approves every FDIC bank and credit union in the country. Yeah, and we're still waiting for that information. At least there's more money here. But, you know, concerns I've heard already is that this money is not going to last much last very long simply because there's so much pent up demand and the banks know kind of what's coming when this cash becomes available. No question. Last uh, round, there was 1.6 million business owners that got approved for financing. And that sounds like a very, very large number. But when you consider there are 30 million small businesses in America, meaning that 94 percent of businesses didn't get approved. Uh, So that is significant pent up demand. Most lenders that we work with at Lendio already have as much demand built up in the, already today than they did in the first round. So I imagine this, this, this second round is going to go very, very quickly. 
how quickly? Well, that's the guess. If I were a betting man, I would say three di three days from when it wow. starts. It sounds like it's Friday morning is our best estimates. Um, so I think uh, by mid next week, it'll probably be gone. I mean, one of the things here that you could suggest is that the average loan size will reduce now as the smallest businesses in the country start to get access. And I know this is something that's so critical about having online lenders such as yourself providing access, because when I look at the average loan size that you provided relative to the loan size overall, it's much smaller. And I know you did 70,000 loans. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. So let me clarify a little bit. We are not a lender ourselves. We are a marketplace and, and we have 300 financial institutions, fintech lenders, banks, credit unions on our platform. But our focus the entire time was on the smallest of small businesses. Um, we had 70,000 businesses funded. About 30,000 of those couldn't get a loan directly through their, their financial institution. And so we were focused on Main Street. We were focused on construction, restaurant owners, retail shops, other healthcare providers. Um, our average loan size was uh, with, that, with our lending institutions was between 70 and 80,000. The program's average loan size is around 240,000. I was surprised that many financial institutions had an average loan size of over 500,000. Um, this round two has to focus on the smallest of business owners that were at a disadvantage in round one. Yeah, and I think some of the larger banks as well perhaps know that the optics of this are going to be very much a focus and so perhaps push resources towards the smaller businesses in this case too. How much more money do you think is going to be needed, Brock? Just back to what we were saying about it running out so quickly. Yeah, well, we did our estimates and you look at the 30 million businesses and the average payroll. Um, our expectation, we thought it would we'd be at $850 billion total. So in an increase of 500 billion, we got 310. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if there is a round three to make sure every business in America can get access to, to these funds. Wow. I mean, Congress is saying they're not going to come back to uh, raise any more money uh, until May. And it looks like this could run out pretty quickly. It's going to be some interesting days ahead. Brock, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Brock Blake, the, the founder and CEO of Lendio. All right, counting down to the market open this morning. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are up and running this Wednesday. I can give you a look at what we're seeing. And as expected, a strong start for stocks after a Tuesday's 3% drop. In fact, in the S&P 500, they remain volatile. We're getting a bit of traction here, I think, as all prices stabilize following their historic plunge earlier this week. I hope I haven't spoken too soon. But as you can see, that is a strong bounce from low levels for oil prices. Individual investors, though, increasingly feeling the pain, I think, of oil's collapse. The United States Oil Fund, a popular ETF, an exchange-traded fund that tracks oil, fell more than 2% yesterday. It's down almost 40% this past week. Energy investment is a tricky thing at the moment. In the meantime, shares of consumer products giant Kimberly Clark are higher after the company reported earnings and revenues that easily beat expectations. Why? Well, of course, consumers stocking up on paper product essentials during the lockdown. 
Social distancing also helping boost the bottom line at Netflix. The streaming giant added more than 15 million new subscribers in the first three months of the year as viewers stuck at home clambered for content like The Tiger King. As we showed you earlier, I've not watched that, I have to say. Profits, though, more than doubled too. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire I haven't watched Tiger King, so I, um, I have to say I didn't understand who I was talking about, <laughs> yeah, but maybe I should catch up. But it wasn't just about the number of people. It was some fascinating comments from the CEO about the lack of ability to gauge what comes next that stood out for me. Yeah, that was really striking, Julia. The phrase guesswork, he used the word guess, guess uh, several times. He said uh, that they don't take that lightly. They simply don't know what's going to happen. But this was a really big number for, for, for Netflix. 15.8 uh, million new subscribers were added. But there were a lot of caveats, and most of them pointed out, emphasized by Netflix itself in, in, in a very downbeat shareholder letter. Obviously, not great PR to, to celebrate something like this at this time, but they do seem to be genuinely worried. They said that, uh, A, a lot of that new subscriber growth came from outside the US, and the revenue boost that they would have expected from this was offset by a much stronger dollar. Secondly, uh, they said that, that, as I said, that, that, that a lot of what's coming next is guesswork. They expect seven and a half million new subscribers in the second quarter, but of course, they don't know. And then they say that they guess that in the third and fourth quarter, subscriber growth will be lower than it might have been because a lot of what we've seen in this quarter was pull forward, was an acceleration uh, of an existing trend. So, so that's, that's, that's one thing they described this uh, as uh, in our 20 plus year history, we have never seen a future more uncertain or more unsettling. So this is a company that's worried. Of course, production has stopped around the world and that puts, puts a lot of uncertainty on their content going forward. And that, of course, is critical in an environment where, where competition in streaming is only increasing. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great point. 64 million people watched Tiger King. It's like, how do you keep coming up with those kind of shows when you're struggling to produce content because of all the restrictions that the country, the world is facing? But I guess the point is all the competition's facing the same thing. Claire Sebastian, yeah, great analysis. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. All right, now from one self-isolation essential to another, food. The CEO of Stu Leonard's grocery stores is calling for grocery workers to be designated first responders. This would give them priority access to things like personal protective equipment, such as masks and gloves. We're now joined by the company's CEO and president, Stu Leonard Jr., and he's coming to us via Skype from one of his stores in Norwalk, Connecticut. Great to have you with us, uh, Stu. Fantastic to have you on the show. And you're all masked up, I see, but the backdrop shows Lots of beautiful fruit and vegetables. It's, it's great to have you here. Just talk me through some of the biggest issues that you've faced and why you think, and I agree with you, grocery workers should be designated, protected as well. They're our heroes too. Yeah. Well, you know, Julia, first of all, I love your accent, and I'm going to go <laughs> home and watch Tiger King tonight. <laughs> um, but <laughs> Me too. But, um, uh, we're right. I'm right in the middle of the action here. And as you can see, customers, hi, they're going by the store. And and right now we have a challenge, you know, feeding everybody. And that's our biggest uh, effort right now. And right now there's um, there's uh, four things we're focused on at Stu Leonard's. The first thing is full shelves. And we're starting to see some hiccups in the supply chain in the U.S. right now because I talked to one beef uh, farmer out in the Montana, he's got plenty of cattle, 
He just can't get them processed. As you know, Smithfield uh, uh, packing plant just closed in Colorado. So, you know, we're the products out there. Restaurants are closed. So all of the food from restaurants went over to the supermarket. And so right now what they're doing is they're they're We got to we're getting the food. We just got to make sure the plants are safe and we could get the food to school letters. See, this is such a great point. I mean, you called it a hiccup. As you say, the farms have got the foods. You've got the capacity to get access to customers and give them food. But it's that it's getting it from the farm to the shelves that, that that's the problem here. What helps fix that? What support is required? Well, one of the things we're lucky about at Stulons, we're, we're buying direct from family farms. So so they're able to get us the product right now. It's the big manufacturers where I think they're starting to see problems in the packing plants. And I think the thing we probably didn't do well enough at Stu Leonard's was react quick enough for our, for our redesigning our workplace at Stu Leonard's. I mean, I don't know if you can notice, but we have plexiglass areas up in front of all of the work areas now to protect our workers from the customers. Um, and we didn't do that fast enough. Uh, we're, we're doing a little video actually today to educate our people like how to eat together. Because we notice even when you go up, uh, one way it's very, very uh, contagious is when you're eating. You know, it's easy to spread the virus through your saliva. And so we're teaching everybody six feet away when you touch the refrigerator handle. you got to keep white washing your hands and keeping them clean. So yeah. education was a big part of it. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear you say that as we start to see parts of the country, parts of the world open up and, and restaurants opening up. And you're making a clear point about the challenges that those kind of businesses face as well. You know, one of the great things about your stores, if if people ever get to go or have been in the past, is that it was very interactive. You could test things. You could taste yeah. things. You could pick up bagels. You had the deli counter as well. What does the future of food shopping look like? Do you think we get back to that one day? Because we have to be so sterile at the moment and probably for the foreseeable future. You know, I'm speaking to our food and wine people all around the world right now. And that's the biggest question what you just asked. How quickly are we going to get back to this? Now, we're only an hour from New York City and we went through 9-11. And, and when you looked at it, people were running away from that area of Manhattan and all of a sudden now it's some of the most expensive real estate in Manhattan is right down there. So I think people's attitudes are going to change. We've been always touted as a Disneyland of dairy stores. You know, we have animation. We have free samples all over the place. Open food buffets, bagel ovens where you could go pick your own bagel. That's definitely going to stop for a while right now. Um, and the question is how slowly are the customers going to feel comfortable now shopping the way they used to. I think everybody likes free food. Everybody likes farmer's markets. I feel very optimistic about um, post-corona here. Once we get a vaccine, I feel optimistic people slowly will get back to their regular routines. Post-corona. I just want to ask you again about, as an owner of a business, the legal risks here, protecting consumers, but also your workers. And I know you've had some challenges actually trying to hire people to help. Do you, do you think when we try and restart yeah. businesses, just convincing workers 
and consumers that things are safe and we're doing everything we can is going to be one of the biggest challenges. Well, that's one thing I'm trying to do at Stu Leonard's. I'm trying to calm our customers down. They think there's going to be no food on the shelves. And there's a little bit of a panic buying going on. We've seen that. I, I've been in this 50 years since I've been a little kid. I've never seen anything like this before because there's so many different factors involved. There's not only the coronavirus where people are petrified, you know, of, of catching it. And as you can see, we're doing a lot of things like social distancing, six feet apart. You see, everybody's wearing masks coming into the store now. You're starting to get different designs of masks. People are wearing gloves, not because they help you, but I, it, it tells me that I, not to touch my face at all when, when I have them on. And we're, we're seeing a different customer coming into the store every day right now. And, uh, and, and we've noticed uh, a few things. The Instacart and the delivery has gone up fourfold since we started. We've had like a 22% more action on our website. Um, we are seeing... Uh, uh, a 70% increase in the average sale. I don't know if you can see any of the shopping carts going by, but they're almost double what they used to be. So people are definitely eating home and stocking up right now. And the big question is, you know, what's this going to look like after things settle down a little bit? Wow, a 70% increase in, in shopping because people want to buy more, they're eating more at home, but they also want to come less, I guess, less often and frequent visits to, yeah. to the grocery store. You know, you know, Julie, one thing I, I want to ask you here is that uh, one thing that I notice, and it's I know you do a lot of financial stuff. We're a private business. And I'm mainly here on the floor, but there's a thing that gets me. This bag of potatoes is less than a dollar a pound, okay? We have these mashed potatoes right here already mashed up and everything by our chefs. And you can buy these. These are about five bucks a pound. Now, when you think the stock market is down, right, People tend to make their own mashed potatoes, okay? Mm. And, and I haven't done any beta stuff on this or any of that, but I would just say that, that right now we're seeing a triple increase in the, the inexpensive potatoes. Right. And we're seeing, a de we're seeing a decrease in the chef-made mashed potatoes that are more expensive. So I think when the stock market gets wobbly, People tend to go to the basics more and, and buy the less expensive food. We're seeing that around the store. People are cooking more. Um, and, and when you talk about what's going to happen after this is done, you've never seen more people asking for recipes right now. What am I going to cook tonight? What am I going to do for dinner? And there, I think you're starting to be home with the families and starting to cook. So maybe you're going to see like more foodies emerge after this whole thing's done. Well, I have to say, if it were my own cooking, there's a risk I would starve, quite frankly. But um, when you have 22 million people claiming for benefits in a country, people start to recognize that you need to protect your money and make your money go further. And I guess that, that would be the point I would make. Right. Stu, stay in touch, please. The shop looks great. I know you're okay. working incredibly hard. And thank you to all your workers there as well and keeping us all fed and watered. Stu Leonard, Jr. Yeah, our workers, there. I'm so proud. So yeah. proud. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. You're right to be proud of them, sir. Thank I'm gonna you. I'm going to watch Tiger, Tiger King tonight. <laughs> okay. You enjoy. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Okay. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, from food to cars, automakers in Europe are getting back on the road. We're live at Volkswagen's German headquarters as 
production slowly restarts. To Europe now, where the car industry pretty much ground to a halt as the outbreak took hold. Now major automakers like Volkswagen are restarting production, and that's no easy task when you consider European supply chains. CNN's Fred Plankgen is at Volkswagen's headquarters in Wolfsburg in Germany, and he joins us now. Fred, it's not just about supply chains, of course. It's getting workers safely back into the workspace, and in the end, who's going to buy these cars? But talk us through what uh, Volkswagen is doing here. It's fascinating. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a really difficult process from start to finish. And you're, and you're also absolutely right to say that it really starts with actually getting the workers to the workplace. I was speaking to, today to the head of production of Volkswagen. He was telling me, look, we need to tell workers every morning they need to take their own temperature, really know if they're feeling all right, if they're going to be able to come to work at all. Then it gets to how do they change into their work clothes? What do they do when they eat? Where do they go? All the cafeterias are closed right now. And then, of course, you get to the working process as well. I was in uh, Germany's second largest Volkswagen plant as well today, uh, Julia, where they make transmissions for Audis. And they were saying that they did a whole flurry of measures to make sure that social distancing, physical distancing in those plants is assured. One interesting thing that I did see is that there weren't that many workers actually wearing masks. And the way they explained that to me, they said, look, if the distance is kept, we believe that's all right. However, in those uh, situations, in those areas where that's impossible, where two workers, for instance, have to go and work on a machine or fix a machine, that's where they need to put those masks on. People need to put those gloves on as well. Volkswagen says it has a 100-point plan on keeping workers safe because, on the one hand, this worker safety is, of course, key. On the other hand, a coronavirus case in one of these factories would no doubt lead to at least a partial shutdown of that factory. And then you get to the whole logistics of reopening factories for the largest automaker in Europe. And of course, a lot of other big automakers are dealing with exactly the same thing. How do you do it? What sort of phased approach do you do? I was able to speak to the head of global production of Volkswagen about that. Here's what he had to say. It takes a couple of days to prepare everything and to go through the whole logistic chain. Um, but we do this plant by plant. And that's uh, then all together created this step-by-step approach where we started already in our Slovakian factory in Bratislava this week and as well in Zwickau. And we will start next week here in the headquarter in, in Wolfsburg with these slow uh, relaunch of, of production and then it goes around Europe and into other areas as well. And it will take us probably... Uh, two, three weeks before we are back to normality. So yeah, there are two, three weeks for Volkswagen. Of course, other European automakers are in exactly the same boat. Toyota Europe looking to start up some factories this week. Mercedes saying they're starting up some uh, next week. And then absolutely right to point out. I spoke to an expert about this as well. What about the automobile market? Certainly a lot of people are saying it's going to take a very, very long time for demand to really come back, not just in Europe, but around the world, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. But a fascinating insight into what the world of work and social distancing in that kind of environment in particular looks like. And it's... um it's a process. Fred Plagen, great to have you uh, on that story at the Volkswagen headquarters there in Germany. All right. Up next, Facebook makes a multi-billion dollar bet in India. We've got the details. Next.
Facebook has taken a $5.7 billion stake in an Indian telecoms operator. The investment in geo-platforms gives Facebook a foothold in one of the world's fastest-growing internet markets. Haddis Gold has the story for us. Haddis, and never has internet access perhaps been more important as today. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. This investment, this $5.7 billion investment, gives Facebook about a 10% stake in Reliance Geo, which is a really fast-growing telecoms company in India. But it doesn't just do, uh, let's say, mobile services. It's also getting really into streaming. And most importantly for this deal is its new e-commerce e platform called Jmart. Now, the reason that Facebook wants to invest in Geo is not only because uh, the Indian market is so ripe for investment, but also because of the opportunity of marrying WhatsApp, which is huge in India, with Jmart. Because keep in mind, Facebook is already planning to roll out a payment services on WhatsApp in India in the coming year. So just think about the opportunities there, marrying WhatsApp with this e-commerce platform. And also keep in mind just that India has so much opportunity for growth. Uh, Facebook already has 340 million people who are on WhatsApp, but 600 million people in India don't even have access to the internet yet. So think about how many more customers they can get in India through that. Now, Mark Zuckerberg gave a statement on his own Facebook post about this, and he actually connected it to the current pandemic situation, saying with communities around the world in lockdown, many of these entrepreneurs need digital tools they can rely on to find and communicate with customers and grow their businesses. This is something we can help with, and that's why we're partnering with Geo to help people and businesses in India create new opportunities. Julia? Yes, e-payments, internet access, 1.3 billion consumers need we say more. Haddis Gold, great job. Thank you so much for that. And finally, we salute a man in San Francisco who's giving away coffee to essential workers from his kitchen window. Take a look at this. Ben Ramirez uses this toy gorilla arm to hand out the brews. His son came up with the idea and now he's making around 10 to 15 cups a day during the pandemic, all of course at arm's length. A lot of people have actually been very thankful having just like a space to come get your coffee and talk to somebody for a second. Kind of makes it feel like they're back in their kind of routine. Ben works in the tech industry but says he'd actually love to open a cafe and coffee roasting company in the future. You have to hand it to him. He's got um, a pretty unique, let's call it that, technique there. Wow. Tiger Kings and Gorilla Arms. It's all happening on first move. But that's it for the show. Stay safe, everybody, please. And I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.